This week we continue, or we start really, a new series, a series based on Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, which is often referred to as the Great Commission. Each week of this series we'll read the Great Commission and then we'll move to another passage of Scripture that sheds more light, gives a bit more detail on what's taking place in this fantastic text, these final words from the book of Matthew. If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to turn to that passage now. Again, it's Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. If you don't have your Bibles with you but would like something tangible, something to, to hold in your hand and follow along with, there should be a Bible on the back of the pew in front of you, or if you prefer, the words will be on the screens beside me. Now, when we're done this passage, don't close your Bibles. For the passage, the message will be coming from this morning is it's not that far away. So that said, I encourage you to follow along as I read the Great Commission this morning, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This morning, uh, we'll be looking in particular at verse 18 of Matthew 28, especially the part where Jesus begins speaking by saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He comes to the disciples, and then before giving them the final outline of what their mission will be, he lets them know that he is the authority. And that's very important. And to explore that a little deeper, I'd like for us to turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. If you're able, I would encourage you to stand as we read the word of the Lord this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Let's end the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So how do we feel about authority? I mean, we love a good rebellion story, don't we? Whether it's Star Wars, V for Vendetta, The Patriot, Hunger Games... Rebel Without a Cause, The Matrix, Footloose, the, I mean, the list could go on for almost ever about the stories that have captured our society in which the plucky underdog rises up and punches the big bad authority figure in the face. I mean, we're Americans, right? Our country was founded on it. We're a Lutheran church. Our, our doctrine was formed by it. Rebellion, in many ways, is in our blood. In the stories where rebellion is championed, the authority, the church, or the government, or the tyrant, or the set of norms that society has accepted that is being rebelled against is villainized. They are seen as evil or abusing their authority, and in some cases they are. But in some cases, the rebellion has more to do with the flaws of the rebel than it does with the flaws of those in authority over them. 
Not all pushing back is bad, for no human authority is perfect. I'm very thankful for the country that we live in. I'm very thankful for the Protestant church, but not every rebellion has such noble causes, does it? Often there are many shades of gray pertaining to personal preference and individual convictions that inform or inspire our rebellions. And so how we push and how we treat those that we are rebelling or pushing against is important. How many times have I pushed against authority in ways that I thought were healthy, but in my arrogance, in my pride, my pushing did more to serve me or belittle those I was pushing against than it did serve the good that I was trying, attempting to champion. Church, we as humans, as people, have had problems with authority since the beginning. There are 1,189 chapters in the Bible, 929 in the Old Testament and 260 in the New Testament. The first two chapters are about creation. Genesis 1 talks about God creating the world. Genesis 2 talks about God creating man and woman. And in Genesis 3, we don't even get a chapter of peace, folks, right? Like the chapter after we are created, we rebel. For in Genesis 3, we have the fall, where man and woman listen to the tempter, to the enemy, to the snake, and they desire to be God. They desire to be an authority, and so they eat of the fruit that they were told not to. They break the one rule that they were given. And so sin was passed down through Adam to the rest of us. So Calvary, it's not just that we're Americans. It's not just because we're a Protestant church. Rebellion is in our blood because of the first time that man rebelled against the holy authority. Because of the first time we rebelled against God. God, the creator of the universe, God, the name above all names, God, the most high, God, the Lord of lords, God, the deliverer, God, the all-powerful, God, the omnipotent, God, the omnipresent. The list of his titles goes on and on. This is the God that we rebel against. He's not some politician with an agenda. He's not a billionaire playboy philanthropist. He's not a greedy old miser. He's not a machine. He's not the system. He, he created us. He knows us best, and he wants what's good for us, and he knows what's good for us better than anyone else does, better than we do, and one day, one beautiful day, we will sing of his praises forever. But today is not that day, is it? For today, we are still rebelling, aren't we? We know that God has given us good instruction for our lives, He's given us the law, which if we were to follow, our lives would be so much more edified. If I put God first in my life and had no idols, had nothing else I would rather do than spend time with him, reading his word, having my time of devotions, telling my neighbor about him, just putting God first in my life over everything else, over my wife, over my kids, over my job, over my hobbies, if I just put God first before anything else, put his instruction, his desires for me first, my life would be more fulfilling but I'm not very good at doing that. In fact, I'm really bad at that. When it comes time for personal devotion, I can come up with 30 other things in that moment that just seem more important. An elder at one of our churches in Fergus Falls likes to quip that if you want to get things done around the house that you've been putting off, you want to get that honeydew list done, just resolve to spend more time with the Lord. Our rebellious hearts put so many things before our God. And we've just hit the first commandment. If we loved our neighbors well, didn't struggle with envy, weren't mad at anyone, if, if we didn't maneuver things so that we could acquire stuff we don't deserve, if we took time to rest like we're supposed to, 
If we didn't struggle with lust, if we respected our parents, there's that authority issue again, right? Like if we could just do the things that God has called us to do, we would live such happier lives. We may think or feel like these instructions are given to us so that God can keep us under his thumb, but that's really just our rebellious hearts talking. If we truly, perfectly followed the law, our lives would be so much more fulfilling and the lives of our neighbors would be so much more blessed. So how are we doing with that, church? How are we doing with not gossiping, with loving our neighbor, with staying away from unhealthy sites on the internet? How are we doing with submitting to the authorities that God has put over us? How are we doing with familial narcissism or with our anger? Are we guarding our tongues? Are we nurturing idols? I don't know what areas of God's law you struggle with the most, but I know that there are areas for none of us is perfect. Each of us has fallen. Each of us fails to keep any of the commandments perfectly. Each of us rebels against the goodness of our God in our own ways. And how has God responded to our rebellion? He sent us his son. He sent us Jesus, Jesus who humbled himself, who left the utopia of heaven for the brokenness of earth and became man. Jesus came and lived among us. He ate with us. He taught us. He loved us. And, and how did we respond? With rebellion, with betrayal. And so Jesus took a cross up a hill. He took two large pieces of lumber upon his shoulders, lumber that he would die on, but they were not his only burden on that journey to Golgotha. For Jesus also carried the sins of the world. He carried every time you and I have ever rebelled against God, every time we have sinned, every time that we have fallen short, every time we have told God out loud or just from our hearts, but every time we have told him no. Jesus took all of it, and as the nails went through his hands, and as he was in his nakedness lifted up, the Bible tells us that he became sin for us. Every sin we have ever done and ever will do, Jesus became it there on the cross. And there on the cross, he paid the price for the sins of the world for all time, for your sins and for mine. And before he surrendered his spirit, our Lord and Savior said this, he said, It is finished. The price for sin has been paid. It is finished. And with those words, he died. But he did not stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. And when we believe in him, when we trust in him, when we rest in the faith that he has given us, when we live, then we live in the promises that God has made to his people. For through faith, we live in the benefits of forgiveness. Through faith, the dirty rags of our sin have been taken from us and we have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Through faith, we have been declared sons and daughters of God and co-heirs with Christ. All of this through faith, through belief, not through works. This is how God has responded to our rebellion, with grace and with mercy and with an abundant outpouring of his love. Sometimes, especially as we sit in the realities of our rebellion and the hurts that they have caused in our lives, in our churches, in our world, the depth of God's grace for us is hard to picture. It's, it's hard to fathom. In those times when we look to verses like our text this morning where Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Church, that's us. If you believe in Jesus Christ and trust in him as your Lord and Savior, then I pray along with Paul that the eyes of your heart may be opened to the glorious promises we have in Jesus Christ. 
Jesus, whom as our text continues, God has seated at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The one who died for us, the one who has been interceding on our behalf, the one who left heaven to become man, this Jesus, this Christ, has been put in authority over us, church. Church is the head, or Christ is the head over everything for the church, as Paul writes. For the church is his body. And God has a mission that he has called his church to, and, and scripture tells us that the gates of hell will not prevail against this church, against this body of Christ, against the authority of Jesus. And when we read that, I, I think we tend to approach it more from a posture of defense. We take comfort in the reality that the forces of evil will not conquer the church. But Calvary, this is written from a posture of offense. The gates of hell will not prevail against, will not hold up against the mighty mission of our God. Jesus, when talking with the disciples, described Satan as a strong man who will be tied up so that his house might be raided. Church, we have been called to join Jesus in raiding the house of the enemy, in proclaiming the message of the gospel to the lost that Satan counts as his own. We are called to tell others about the hope we have in Christ, about the good news of the gospel, and the gates of hell will not stand against the power and the authority of our God, of our Savior, of our Lord. This is exciting stuff. It's powerful stuff as we begin our series on the Great Commission. I felt it important to establish the authority of the one who is sending us. Go, says Jesus, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. These instructions come from the one that God has put above all things related to the church, related to God's mission here on earth. As we work our way through the coming weeks, as we talk about what it means to go, what it means to make disciples, as we ask questions about baptism, as we look at what Jesus is talking about when he calls us to teach, to obey, as we look at this directive from our Lord, from the one who is the authority over us, I encourage us to continue to ask ourselves the question, how are we doing with that? Are we living on mission with Christ, or are we living in rebellion against him? Because if we're not living on mission, if we're not doing the things the Great Commission is calling us to do, the instruction that the one in authority over the church has given us, then what other conclusion can we come to than that we are still living in rebellion? Not necessarily by what we have done, but by what we have left undone. Have we given the mission of God priority in our lives? Have we given it the priority that Christ, our authority, has called us to give it? Yes, we need to provide for our families. Yes, we need to take care of our relationships. Yes, we need to meet the needs of those under our authority, our kids, our employees, the volunteers underneath us. Yes, we need to take time for rest. But have we given those areas of our life and the demands that they make on us, have we given them more authority than Christ's call to join him on his mission? Those are hard questions to wrestle with. But I encourage you to wrestle with them. I'm not here to tell you where you will land. The Holy Spirit is a better convictor, director than I will ever be, and, and you need to listen to him over me. 
My intent is not to cause guilt. Know that I fail in every way that each of you fail. And so these questions are directed from Scripture to me just as much as they are to you. I've just had the privilege of wrestling with them a little longer as they were convicting me all week. No, my intent is not to cause guilt. My intent is to be true to Scripture. But this week, today, right now, as we wrestle with these questions, as we possibly feel guilty, I pray that we would also look to the one who has taken our guilt away. Yes, we are called to mission. We have been and will continue to be. And as we push towards that, as we struggle towards that, let us remember that we have been forgiven our rebellion. The rebellion we commit today and the rebellion we will commit tomorrow, Christ died for that hesitancy in your heart. Calvary, it is my prayer that we would rest in the grace that God has given us, that we would find peace in the forgiveness and mercy of our Lord, but that the authority of our God and the importance of the mission that we have been called to would spur us out of the rebellion of our hearts and into the mission that he has called us to join him in. There is forgiveness for our rebellion, but that does not stop the call that God has put on our lives. That does not give us an excuse to resist being part of his mission. I don't know how God is calling you to join him. Maybe it's teaching Sunday school. Maybe it's volunteering with youth group. Maybe it's helping to set up for the block party. Maybe it's being a part of the worship team. Maybe it's helping with the movie nights we have coming up. Maybe it's finally talking to your neighbor about that stuff you know you've needed to. Maybe it's mending a relationship. Maybe it's discipling those men or women that God is bringing into your life. Maybe it's getting baptized. Maybe it's talking to someone about your faith. I I don't know how God is calling you, but church, I know that the one who has authority over God's mission is calling you. For he has said to all of us, go. How? How will we respond? What a fantastic, gracious, merciful, authoritative, powerful, and loving God we serve. Amen.